Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. So, John Medved, thank you very much for joining the Reorient Podcast. I'm very appreciative to have you on as a guest. It's great to be here, Jesse. Good to see you. <laughs> so, you know, I uh, have had the pleasure of getting to know you as uh, an investor in our crowd over a number of years and watched uh, your firm grow by leaps and bounds. It's a fascinating story and really thrilled to be able to share it um, with our audience, which is um, very broad uh, in, as we cover everything from international relations and economics to arts and culture. But um, I think what you're doing is really an important part of sort of the overall conversation, what's happening in the world now. So uh, looking forward to uh, hearing that. So you've got a really interesting personal story. So can you just give our listeners a sort of a brief introduction to sort of how you got to where you are now as uh, I'm sure uh, 20, 30 years ago, you never imagined you'd be in the position you are uh, currently. I think that's probably true for most of your listeners. <laughs> uh, but uh, I grew up in Southern California, I was born in San Diego, raised in LA, went to school in Berkeley, got there in the 70s at the height of sort of the student rebellion, and ultimately found myself coming to visit Israel as a summer student um, after my freshman year. Fell in love with the country and learned Hebrew and came back and visited several times and, and committed my life to living in Israel. And I've lived here ever since. So I've been in Israel now for upwards of 40 years, would you believe? So did you make it to Israel primarily for um, sort of religious reasons or any other sort of particular no, I, 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 There were two things that attracted me to Israel. One was the most amazing hummus in the world, and the other, one, uh, <laughs> probably in this order, the most amazing women in the world. So uh, th that's what drew me here, and I never looked back. I, I found myself getting involved in tech business very soon uh, after arriving here through an old Jewish tradition called nepotism. Uh, my, <laughs> my late father, Dr. David Medved, was an entrepreneur way before it became fashionable, and he had a fiber optic communications company, which he started in our basement. And uh, he recruited me when I was in Israel to help him. And uh, I took to this and uh, I helped him. I did, indeed did. And we ultimately sold that company to Amico, uh, which was a, a, a large oil company today, part of British Petroleum. And that was my first exit. So you've been um, involved in sort of startups and technology in Israel for a number of decades. About 40 years. Um, 40 years. So I'm just curious, sort of the arc, like in the early days of your career, what were sort of the tech issues you were looking at and, and how has that evolved uh, over time? Well, in, in those early days, there was no money here. I mean, literally, <laughs> when I started my uh, fiber optic company here, there was not a single venture capital fund. Right. The first venture capital fund was established here in 1986. And uh, for six lonely years, with their $28 million, they were the only fund in the country. So if you were lucky enough to be the one or two deals they would do at a million dollars, that was it. And the problem was there was no money to follow on. The second funds were established in the 1990s. And actually, that's when I built my venture capital fund. Uh, in between that first fiber optic communications company and setting up a venture fund, I managed to uh, help found and uh, take public another company 
uh, called Accent Software, where I was part of the founding team and uh, we did internet software, went public on NASDAQ. And then I built one of Israel's first venture capital funds, uh, Israel Seed Partners, started that in my basement. So I guess I followed the family tradition. And uh, um, my kids don't seem to be too attracted to basements. They're, they're very entrepreneurial, but they're not in the basement mode. Um, I'm talking to you from a basement right now. <laughs> um, is it fair to say there was a turning point, I think, or a um, an inflection point, maybe a better word, for Israel uh, really coming onto the global tech scene that coincided with the NASDAQ in the 90s, really bringing yeah. up momentum and becoming yeah. a, a popular investment team? Look, look, is, is, I mean, I'm, my timing was good. Timing is probably one of the most overlooked factors in uh, venture capital, uh, it's very critical. Like, you know, today, timing has been great for the last several years as a venture capital fund. Today, you know, I run our crowd, which is the largest uh, and most active venture investing platform uh, online in the world. And, you know, we've had a very, very good run during this current, you know, uh, bull venture market. But you've got to get the timing right. Because, you know, for example, one of the things that we're investing in now uh, heavily is uh, quantum computing. And there's a big debate about whether quantum is real. You know, I think most people believe it is real, but they don't know if it's going to be something that will affect us in five years, 10 years, or 25 years. And if it's 25 years, not a good idea to be investing now. If it's five or 10 years, depending upon your outlook, probably, yes, a good idea to be investing. So timing becomes really critical. Got it. Okay. Well, that's a great um, chance in terms of timing, maybe to segue to our crowd, which is the, the uh, firm you're running today. So how did you get the idea to start our crowd? What was the genesis of, of starting what's Israel's most successful VC tech platform? Well, uh, after I exited my last startup, uh, which I built after my venture fund, a company called Vringo, which I took public, was a mobile a video application company that I took public on the New York Stock Exchange, I went on a speaking tour. And as I was speaking to people, mostly about Israel and the, and the technology miracle that was going on in this little country, afterwards, people would approach me, hand me their card and say, quite excitedly, and this was repeating itself over and over again, they'd say, get me a deal, find me a deal. And I'd look at them and say, what are you talking about? And said, I want to make investments. I'd say, okay, you want you want a referral to a venture capital fund? They go, no, 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 that's millions of dollars. I, I don't have that kind of capital. I don't want to make that kind of commitment. Find me some deals for 50 grand, 100 grand, where I can be an angel investor. And I was polite and took their business card and gave them mine and said, I, I really, that's not my business, but I'll be happy you know, to keep your card. And if anything comes up, I'll be in touch. Well, these cards started filling up uh, some shoe boxes in my, uh, downstairs basement office and uh, started scanning them into my, you know, database. And finally, I put two and two together and said, wait a minute. You know, there are a lot of people who want to invest in companies that aren't your traditional venture capital investors. You know, traditional venture capital investors have been big institutions or billionaire families, people who can write five, 10, 20 million dollar checks. That's the real sort of classic venture capital investment scene. But people who wanted to put a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to work, how do they do it? You can't pick up the phone and call your broker. You can't call 
Goldman and Morgan and say, give me a startup. They're private companies. So I thought that was a really interesting area to ideate around and to see if I could uh, build a, a company. And that's how our crowd was born. And I think you you make the argument that I guess for uh, people of a certain degree of wealth that actually having angel slash early stage venture capital makes sense in a portfolio, especially if you're able to invest in a bunch of different deals such that even if you're, you know, because you're typically your hit rate in terms of the success rate may not be very high, but for those few successes, you can give a really outsized return. So on a portfolio basis, it actually really can enhance a, a portfolio. Is that a fair statement? That's more than a fair statement. In fact, <laughs> thank God we're recording this so I can play the chat. <laughs> and it was very, very well uh, stated, Jeff. Look, the, the reality is that smart money has always understood that venture capital played right and executed right can be a tremendous uh, boost to your you know, portfolio returns. And the smartest investors in the world are way oversized in uh, uh, venture capital. People like the Yale University Endowment, you know, led by Swenson, one of the perhaps the most important thought leader you know, in mm-hmm. endowment management. Uh, this year, their target uh, allocation to venture capital is 23%. Amazing. 23% of their endowment is in VC. Okay, now, most individuals have zero, right? right. Most big institutions struggle to get 1% or 2%. Now, you know, I'm not going to tell you what percentage you should have, but people who are accredited investors who have you know, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but have millions of dollars to invest. And it doesn't have to be double digit millions, but have single digit millions of dollars. They should have some kind of commitment to venture capital. But, you know, if you have a a million or two million, it shouldn't be above 50 or $100,000. And until people like our crowd came along, there was no intelligent way to play it, right? Because you basically, you know, wait for your cousin or your friend to say, hey, I got a hot deal for you. Good luck with that. Okay, that's unfortunately not a investment strategy. So at our crowd, the idea is very, very simple, which is we apply best practice, best knowledge, and best execution of venture capital is done by professionals, and then we essentially select deals out of hundreds and even thousands of deals that we look at. We then invest our own capital, and then we invite others to join us on the same terms. And then we manage these investments. First of all, we're getting big boy and big girl terms, right? We're getting preferred stock with all kinds of special rights, such as what are called preemptive rights, the right to follow your investment, the right to not be diluted, so it's anti-dilution rights, the right to have information. We sit on boards. All of that we do, but we give the individual investor, believe it or not, the ability to get into a quality deal starting at $10,000 for an individual investment. And we've been very excited over the last couple of years that a couple of our companies have gone public in New York, not just as good exits, which of course is important, but as actually the best performing debuts of public companies in 2019 and 2020. In 2000, Feel free to name to drop some names of which sure. those are. In 2019, the best performing stock as a debut on Wall Street was a company called Beyond Meat, which, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people derogatorily called it, you know, a veggie burger company. (laughs) I would 
<laughs> I'm very glad, and it was very tasty indeed to be an investor in that company. Spectacular performance for us and our our crowd investors who got a chance to invest in that plant-based uh, protein alternative company as private investors. And then in 2020, our top performer was a company called Lemonade, which was not another food company. It's actually an insurance company, sort of revolutionizing insurance. And they also went public very effectively. We don't know what this year's winners are going to be, but we have several that are that are looking extremely promising. Right now, we have 250 companies in our portfolio. 43 have already exited, meaning have either gone public or have been sold to other companies. People that are buying our companies include Intel, Microsoft, Samsung, H&R Block, Canon, etc. The you know tech giants all over the world. And uh, we now have almost 90,000 accredited investors signed up on the platform worldwide, and they come from 195 countries. They literally come from all over. And what we're proud of is that we're not only, you know, we're now managing getting close to about $2 billion in commitments, but we're providing access to great deals. And we're then using this network to provide value to the companies. Because the only way that you can effectively get allocation in a hot company today is not by paying outrageous prices, but by providing outrageous value. Because the best companies uh, basically can take money from whoever right, they, they like. Can, that's and, right. They, can they, be they, they choose the people they feel are going to help them build their company. And it turns out that our crowd with its 90,000 you know, investors worldwide who are choosing companies who are well-connected people provide an incredible network, which many of these companies are excited about including in their you know, future journey. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about our crowd and what you're doing is it is, uh, and you and you talk about that consistently, is it is about network ecosystem connecting people and companies and in fact, countries. And that's, you know, follows on the theme. And so one of the distinguishing aspects about our crowd is obviously it's based in Israel. Israel's the startup nation. It's one of the top places in the world for startups and for tech startups specifically. How much is the Israeli, um, your Israeli location, your Israeli connections, part of your success story? And how do you see um, sort of other people wanting to connect within the Israeli uh, tech ecosystem from outside of Israel? It, look, it's been a huge part of our success. And we're very proud of our Israeli roots. We're today a global company. Uh, uh, over 40% of our investments are made outside of Israel, but still 54% are made in Israel, which is a, a good thing because Israel today has about 10% of the, the world's unicorns, of the 600 unicorns who are uh, private companies that are now worth a billion dollars but not yet public. Of the 600, about 60 of them are Israeli, which Amazing. is crazy because Israel represents one tenth of one percent of the world's population. So we have a, you know, you're a hundred times more likely of running into a unicorn in Israel on a per capita basis than anywhere else in the world. I mean, maybe in this country, unicorns aren't as unlikely as as 
as their name implies. Well, miracles happen in, in Israel. We, we know that. Um, yeah. uh, now, it seems in terms of the Asia connection, you know, we're based in Asia um, and we're looking at kind of the world a little bit from an Asian orientation. It, it seems that the connections between Asian corporates in Israel uh, did it start first with maybe Japanese corporates or what were the first companies in the Far East to really start to look to make those inroads into Israel? Oh, well, I, you know, it's it's really been over the last 40 years that I've been here, quite remarkable to watch Asia play a role uh, with Israeli tech. I mean, Israel's very connected to the U.S. Uh, there's a very strong connection and that's a very good thing, very powerful thing for Israel, both on a political, on a diplomatic, on intelligence, military. Uh, most important for us is the you know economic link both to New York in terms of you know capital markets and most importantly to Silicon Valley. I mean, today there are about 350 uh, different multinational R&D centers in Israel, the majority of which are Silicon Valley. So you know, Facebook, Google, Intel. I mean, Intel has invested alone in Israel over fifty billion, five zero billion dollars in the last several decades. Nice. And you know, Intel probably should change its slogan to Israel Inside. Okay, uh, but the the role that Asia has consistently played and increasingly played is is often overlooked. And um, yes, there were many Japanese corporations that you know, got involved. We're, by the way, very connected now to Japan. We announced two major deals in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one was a $60 million investment from the Oryx Corporation, which is a great, great uh, company who now have taken a position at our crowd in the parent. And we just announced a $15 million private funding deal with uh, NTT, you know, uh, who are the telecom giant Okay, uh, who are very interested in expanding their presence in the startup nation. So we're very committed to Japan, but it's not just Japan, it's Korea, okay, uh, it's uh, Thailand, it's Singapore, it's China, okay, it's, it's literally all over Asia. And uh, we're, you know, very bullish on that connection. Uh, Israel has strength in areas that the Asian countries are very excited about, whether it's mobility or food tech or agri-tech or uh, AI everything or cybersecurity or semiconductors, optics. You know, these Israel is really a, a great place for deep tech. And the Asian markets seem to be very, very hungry for that kind of deep technology, medical technology of all kinds, obviously. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, technically, can we say Israel is actually on the Asian continent? So Israel is actually part of Asia, uh, if I'm not well, mistaken. I mean, and, and more so than ever before, especially given the realignment going on with our neighbors in the Gulf, which has also mm. been a huge game changer in the last year, where now that the sand curtain, if you will, has come down. Okay, it's, With it's, the Abraham Accords. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really as important as when the Iron Curtain came down in Europe this artificial barrier that was separating Israel from its Arab neighbors in the Gulf, in particular, you know, the UAE and the Saudis, it's down now, okay? And whether or not countries have either formally reconciled and normalized relations or are about to, the trade is booming between Israel and its neighbors. And it's really, I think, opened Israel up to Asia 
And this will have a huge impact on our relationship with Asia. Because if there was ever any hesitation on the part of Asian investors about engaging with Israel, it was often revolving around what is that going to do to my ties in the Gulf? You know, are right. they, are, are my Arab partners going to like this or not like it? Today, there are allies. Okay, they're not mm -hmm. just normalized. They're our friends. Okay, we have common enemies, unfortunately, but we have huge common interests and collaboration. And, and so, a growing friendship. And a growing and a, and, a, and, a, and a truly growing friendship at a human level. I'm talking to people in the Gulf literally every day. Right. And the warmth, the, the friendship is so mm -hmm. strong mm -hmm. uh, that I really think that this is, is a game changer in a very fundamental way and will have a huge impact. I, I just recently did a podcast with a group of Japanese investors or over 100. Mm -hmm. And all they wanted to talk about was Israel and the Gulf. Because they see, they know what happens to a, economics when reconciliation takes hold. And you have Absolutely. to just look at what happened with Germany and Japan, okay? And it's it's fascinating, actually. The other group that I've spoken to about this have been Germans, okay? And the people who understand that when you put this history behind you and you start looking at how you move forward, this is going to have an impact not just on our region, Okay, but on 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 the entire world, and certainly bring Israel both closer, and it, it's closer not just mentally or metaphorically, but it's actually physically, because for example, Israeli planes now able to transit Saudi Arabia has just brought Asia, in many cases, two three hours closer by plane trips, right? It's so the airspace is open now. It's the airspace it's, uh, is open, and that, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you what's what's amazing is that you know we can fly now to Mumbai quicker than you can fly from LA to New York, wow. right? So, so, you know, all of a sudden it just messes with your head when you say, wait a minute, Israel really is in Asia, okay? Right. But on the other hand, we're also less than five hours to London and we're 10 hours to New York. So Israel is at the middle of the world. Now, to the extent that travel doesn't really matter and we're all doing Zoom, that also is good for, for Israel. I mean, what's funny is that the pandemic, in a strange way, has been a huge accelerant to the digital economy and to online investing, whether it's venture capital traditionally or the way that our crowd does it online. Because if you're doing a Zoom with your investor and you're both in Silicon Valley, what difference does it make then if you're doing a Zoom with somebody in Israel or in uh, Hong Kong? And this has brought the world together and, in my opinion, going to enable a much flatter, more democratic world of investment as a result of the pandemic. So just to get back for a moment to sort of the geopolitics and what's really these monumental changes happening in the region, a lot of it focused on Israel. My sense is, and I, I imagine you might agree, that in particularly in, in America, but I'm sure in Europe, there's still a very antiquated perception and stories about Israel, narratives that are really obsolete and don't recognize how far Israel's come and how far the rest of the world's come in terms of its engagement in Israel. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I, I think, by the way, it really is antiquated and it's, and it's being superseded. I mean, there was a really fascinating interview just published a week ago about the new British ambassador to the, uh, Israel. 
And they asked him, well, how does he like his new posting? What's he doing? And he said that, well, about 80% of what I'm doing in Israel is sourcing technology for the UK. Okay. Wow. And, you know, he said, I've been posted here before. And I remember that we were obsessed with the Palestinian issue. That's what I, he goes, not anymore. Okay. In other words, and not, and not that there isn't still what to do in that area. And there is, but the dynamic has changed, right? Israel is now really realigned as part of the region. Okay. And this region is starting to lead the world. And that's what's remarkable. You look, for example, at vaccine numbers. The two countries who are way out ahead of the entire world are Israel, number one, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, number two. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world is playing catch up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you ask yourself, wait, since when did the Middle East ever lead anything <laughs> other than conflict? And right. I, I think that people don't appreciate how entrepreneurial some of those Arab societies are in the Gulf, and how by putting them together with Israel, we get now critical mass, we start working together, we've got the capital, we've got the access to markets, there's a huge Islamic market, which is now just opening up to Israel, countries like Indonesia, which, you know, there was always tremendous trade going on under the radar, but now it's opening up, and it's open, okay, even though that's not formally normalized, countries like Malaysia, And this is really going to be a big difference. I think a very, very big difference going forward. Absolutely. It totally agreed. And and so it it was only uh, like a few years ago, there was still some of the old talk about, you know, conflict and this and that, especially when the Trump administration was was planning to move the uh, U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And today now Israel has new normalized official relations with a number of Arab and and, uh, Islamic countries. And it seems to be more being announced uh, every month or two. Yeah, we're look, we're hoping that some big and important ones will join this circle going forward. Uh, inshallah, as we say, you know, <laughs> God willing. Uh, but I think that this is an inexorable trend, right? I don't think yes. any change in administration or any, you know, this is like the Iron Curtain came down. That's and right. once it comes down, you don't rebuild it. You know, it just, it, I don't care what your politics are. It doesn't make sense for people who would like to work together, who would like to be together, would like to visit each other's country, who would like to eat together, you know, and and, and do business together, why they shouldn't do that. Okay. And uh, that that is that is just that ship is sailing and everybody who has half a brain wants to be on this ship. So, so far as of yet, what is our crowd doing or planning to do in the, in the Gulf region? Well, we've already recruited a team, right? We're the, uh, probably the leading Israeli financial group who have uh, put boots on the ground, if you will, in the UAE. Uh, it's led by Dr. Sabah uh, Banali, Al-Banali, who is a uh, serial entrepreneur, great guy. He's already got six people working for him. We're wow. uh, in the process of registering uh, in both uh, Dubai and in the uh, uh, Abu Dhabi. We are uh, planning even greater investments there and activity. We are bringing our companies to do joint ventures. We are uh, looking at investments there. All I can tell you is that we're you know hyperactive in terms of building relationships and keenly 
interested in the opportunities both for uh, our crowd itself as well as for our portfolio companies. Um, do you are sort of any deals, uh, sort of cross border deals between Israel and Gulf neighbors? Anything we might expect to hear in the next few months? You think, or yes, you will when you when, okay. when you hear them. <laughs> Yeah, look forward to that. <laughs> Given the fact that uh, uh, things things are happening in real time, I, I would yes. guess that depending upon when you listen to this podcast, there might have been some news coming your way. Now, um, you know, we you know we we know a lot about the Israeli government and Bibi Netanyahu. We still we know about the U.S. administrations, but actually, there's something happening within the Gulf, within these Gulf um, royal families, these governing. Uh, groups in terms of the change in mindset too, right? It's coming down from the top in some of these countries as well. Do you have a sort of a view or, or kind of share with us a little bit what you've well, observed? I'm, I'm still learning, right? In other words, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm an active student of what's going on. All I can say is that uh, so far I am incredibly impressed, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I think the quality of the business people, of the leadership, I keep on watching these UAE ministers online. I, I, I participate with them and podcast, I'm blown away. Some mm. of these people are incredibly smart and eloquent. There are There's a whole string of, of unbelievable women ministers coming from the UAE who are just, you know, uh, they're, 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 they're remarkable people. And I think that the, the, the move is towards innovation, towards tolerance, towards working together. There's no you know, whitewashing of, of, of political differences. They, they still are there, but it's like, okay, how are we going to better solve these political remaining mm -hmm. outstanding issues with, you know, working together or, you know, having uh, sort of uh, weird boycotts and, you know, estrangement. And I think everybody agrees that this is the way forward. And uh, we're, we're, we're just really bullish on this. They're also, I mean, I, I mean, I know a little bit. It looks like in the UAE they have long-term plans. I think some things even like fifty or more years, including sort of space missions and and this sort of thing. So uh, they're they seem to have a vision and ambition that goes well beyond what we're used to in in sort of the our, our west in the Western world. Yeah, look, they, they, um, I think that they're very uh, far-sighted, and in fact, mm -hmm. that's one of the the nice things about working with them because Israel is usually a long-term plan is next month. Uh, and uh, we're, we're masters of improvisation and getting things done quickly and pivoting. Okay. That's, that's, you know, Israel is not good at 10 year or 20 year plans. That's like, I think as you said, um, during the pandemic, you, th you said, you know, we've, this not our first rodeo. Right? Yeah. No, no, uh, we, we're, good at, we're good at crisis management. And, right. and we believe in, you know, forward motion. Sometimes you have to j zig and zag as you move <laughs> forward. Okay. You know, go around obstacles and things like that. But it's that sort of long-term outlook that they have in particular when it meets Israeli entrepreneurship provides a very interesting dynamic where I think it's very fertile potential cooperation. I'm curious. I mean, uh, you know, obviously you're operating primarily in the business realm. We're looking forward um, just in your interaction with some of, um, you know, Arab friends and partners. Have you noticed uh, a little more commonality or sharing on the on the sort of the traditional, the religious looking back? And it sort of has that does that come up at all? Or is that just yeah, kept no, as a it personal? Def it, it definitely comes up. And it's it, it's a 
a huge part of what's going mm-hmm. on because I think mm-hmm. there's a look. We are we are all children of Abraham. Okay, right. and and that's why I thought it was so smart calling these the Abraham Accords. Yeah, okay? genius. Because it's really about what we share in common and. I am struck by the time that I've been out there, how much Arabic, without ever being formally taught, I know, okay, you know, <laughs> simply by living here in the region, part of Israel, you know, 20% mm-hmm. of our population is uh, our Arab Israelis. And mm-hmm. it, it feels like all of a sudden, a distant part of your family has reconnected with you. Yeah, okay? it's beautiful. Because it's, it's it, it, and I'll tell you, it's, What's interesting about it is that people are flocking to this of all Mm -hmm. kinds, not just Arabs Mm -hmm. and Jews, but Mm -hmm. other people who want to be part of this reconciliation. Okay. And it's having an impact, by the way, on Israelis and Palestinians. It's having an impact on Israelis and Egyptians. It's having an Mm -hmm. impact, you know, as, as this spreads, this spreads goodness. Okay. And the fact that we're working together on world problems. Okay, where we're trying to tackle, you know, issues together. Okay, leadership in healthcare and the environment and ag tech and food tech and logistics, you know, and mobility. Okay, how cool is that? It's it, and, well, and, I've always I've always felt that business often is underappreciated by people who are not in the business world because um, you who sometimes have a stereotypical view of what business is about or businessmen, but it's really a, a primarily about cooperation and working with people to achieve a shared goal. And if you don't have that alignment with one another, you can't, uh, you can't ever achieve in business. So uh, I find that business people make for really great leaders and, um, and really provide a lot of um, value to society. So it's, it's sort of, in a sense, not surprising that these uh, happy in the region that your you know, businesses can, can drive this uh, positive yeah, part, change. Part of this goes back to our earlier conversation about timing. Because, you know, the more that people realize that this is not necessarily all transactional, but it's relationship-based, right? In other words, uh, one of the things that was said very intelligently early in this process with our Arab neighbors was a quote by uh, uh, Muhammad al-Alabar, who uh, is one of the big builders out there who built the Burj. And he said, look, when I my advice to my new Israeli friends is when I meet you, come meet my mother. Mm-hmm. said, what do you, what? Your mother's involved in your business? He goes, no. Okay, I want you to understand who I am, where I come mm-hmm. from. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and in that regard, this is very much like Asia, where mm-hmm. in Asia, it's not about the art of the deal. That, with mm-hmm. all due respect, is a very American concept. It's mm-hmm. about the art of the relationship. It's about right. taking a long-term view of, of matters. That you know, it's win-win as much as you can. That can I trust you? Are we? Are you going to look out for my interests? Are you going to take care of me? I'm going to take care of you, etc. Now, you know, this is uh, I, I think the most important part of what's happening now with Israel and the Gulf. But I think it it really resonates when you when you expand this circle and look about uh, Asia. I mean, the relationships we're building in Asia are long-term. Maintaining a relationship over distance, over time is not an easy thing, but it's an incredibly satisfying thing. And I think venture capital, interesting enough, is not about a trade. 
or, or a deal. Venture capital is about building companies over time. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the way you build an Apple computer or an Amazon or a Google is not a one-year, two-year, three-year thing. It's a, it's a decades-long endeavor. And I think that as we tackle these world challenges, which are really facing us all, okay, the, the future of the planet depends on us doing this, whether it's in water or in air or in energy or in uh, feeding the planet, okay, uh, or in healthcare. You know, we, we, we've come to realize that these big issues that we're tackling now are, are far greater than one country. They're not local anymore. They're, they're global. And this is, you know, I, I think the way that small countries like the UAE, like Israel, working together, like Singapore, like Hong Kong, okay, can, can show the way, okay, and we punch out of our weight class, okay, and, and we can have a huge impact on, on how the planet deals I, with I've, I've had that feeling for a number of years now, John, that actually small countries, um, just because of nature, maybe it's game theory, are actually the future because they're, they're, they, they, out of necessity, they're going to be more open, they're going to be more cooperative. And so there's almost a force, uh, a pressure on them to do that, which actually brings me to my, maybe a challenge. So it's a question is, especially big countries, and there were some small countries have it seems like increasingly security concerns, national security concerns in technologies viewed as sort of strategic and um, perhaps critical to national security. Do you find that the challenge of balancing national security with uh, sharing of technology, it, can that be worked out relatively easy? Is there a framework for doing that? Or do you think this is going to be a persistent challenge in developing the scale of technologies that the whole world you know, could benefit from? I think this is a, a, a very significant issue. I mean, part of the problem about small countries is that we're, we're caught between giants. And there seems to be a increasing, not decreasing amount of conflict around technology as a issue of national mm-hmm. security, certainly between the U.S. and China. And Israel and countries like us are, are caught right in the middle of that. On the one hand, we want to be you know, friendly with everybody and trade with everybody, except that certain partners of ours are are increasingly alarmed by the fact that we're doing business with uh, people, you know, on the other side. And I think businessmen would prefer to not have to deal with politics. Uh, Well, I think businessmen don't like barriers, right? And just by nature, we want to be able to deal with everyone and make profits and and, and work together. So there's sort of a... You don't want to have to think about the political implications of that. That's right. And and that's, by the way, been very bad for, for Israel. Right. In other words, you know, we were hurt for a while by boycotts and by, you know, people who basically applied a political lens to what it is that we wanted to do business wise. Uh, And we've come out from under that. Right. In other words, we we fought that and won that battle. I mean, you know, all the boycott efforts against Israel have been just complete disasters and and failures. Okay, Mm -hmm. Our, our, our trade powers on. But we don't really want to find ourselves in that situation and how you deal with that, especially in a world where technology itself has become a, a hot topic, you know, yes. artificial intelligence, semiconductors. These are areas that 
you know, the big powers are sort of circling around. And when you get countries like Israel, for example, in the last several weeks alone, both people like Facebook and Microsoft have announced plans to start semiconductor design centers in Israel. Because these companies, which you never associate with semiconductors, right? Facebook, Microsoft, building set. Well, guess what? Everybody needs semiconductors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Asia in particular has been, you know, very, very interested in what Israel does in terms of semiconductor design. We have a company, for example, in our portfolio called Halo, who make perhaps the most exciting AI accelerator chip, right? That works on the edge and really helps run uh, AI algorithms with very low power and very high performance. You know, there's tremendous know-how in Israel, which everybody wants to get access to. So Israel is becoming this little bit of a of a great pl- power uh, uh, battleground, if you will. And, and I'm, I'm not sure we're entirely comfortable with that. Uh, and hope, hope, hopefully we'll stay, you know, friendly with all sides. Um, I know um, Israel traditionally did a lot of outreach, diplomatic, e- economic outreach and agriculture because Israel was the vanguard in um, advanced use of irrigation uh, for places, uh, countries that may be uh, short in terms of available water. And Israel was very um, adept at tech, creating technologies to enable agriculture in places that traditionally weren't able to do it uh, effectively or economically. Are you seeing uh, maybe something on the technology side with countries that are, haven't really um, underdeveloped countries that aren't uh, don't have the money and the resources to to develop technology, even maybe to apply it? Is is that a sort of a new aspect of yeah? No, of, ag, ag uh, tech yeah. first of all is just a huge opportunity now. We're very mm-hmm. very active in investing. We just announced actually a week ago a deal with the Water Fund, a fifty million dollar deal where this fund, which, by the way, is active in the Arab world and active in North America, is now putting $50 million to work in water and ag tech and environmental companies that we'll be selecting from within the, the R-Crowd uh, portfolio. Um, mm-hmm. you know, our ag uh, portfolio continues to grow. Uh, we have two incubators we operate, one in uh, uh, New Zealand, believe it or not, where we're working with Fonterra, the big dairy and a, a great fund called Finisterre, building ag tech companies there. Another is a food tech uh, incubator up in the north of Israel, where we're working with China's Bright Foods, okay, who yes. own Israel's largest dairy called Tnuva, together with Israel's largest drink company, Tempo, and again, Finisterre. So, you know, we're, 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 we're seeing tremendous interest. And what's happening in agriculture, of course, is it's being driven by a couple of technologies that are all coming together. So one is sensor technology, right? The ability to collect data, both from airborne platforms, whether it's satellites or uh, drones or uh, uh, crop dusters. We have companies like Tyrannus that are doing that. We have companies that are collecting data from sensors in the ground, like CropX, okay? And then companies like uh, Consumer Physics, who use this revolutionary SIO, to get up close to a berry or to corn or to wheat and to get real-time sensing data. So it's about the ability to get the data, but then once you get the data, you need the AI to begin to understand it. And Israeli companies are helping huge agriculture players around the world collect data and interpret it. And I think that when you combine this sort of tech approach 
with our very strong uh, agronomic and agriculture you know history as well as water everything israel becomes a really formidable one-stop shop for anybody who's looking to up their their ag tech game and uh we're we're very excited about it we continue to make investments both in israel and outside of israel uh in agriculture everything and I, i'm i'm very bullish about this sector in particular Fantastic. Well, John, I, I know we're um, probably running out of time. I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Really appreciate your joining. I guess I'd just be maybe just to kind of wrap up with one or two more questions. Just in terms of Asia, are you finding more opportunities with Asian companies or say investing companies uh, expanding their operations in Asia? Is that something you're seeing more of? Or, or yeah, is it, absolutely. Uh, Look, it, it used to be that an Israeli company really bought a, a round trip ticket from Tel Aviv to San Francisco, and that was what they focused on. Today, they are hedging their bets and buying another round trip to Hong Kong or to Singapore or, or Tokyo. Uh, and they we're continuing, by the way, uh, Europe is one of Israel's largest trading partners. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of business up there still, too. So uh, I, I think Israeli companies are taking a global uh, view. And, and that's a good thing, because I think that more and more uh, your success as a startup is how are you going to become a mini multinational from day one, right? In other words, it used to be that a startup had to focus specifically on their local market, right? And everyone said, okay, first get your local. But in Israel, there's never been a market, right? In other words, <laughs> our market is the world. And right. uh, uh, that's really what I think, you know, people say, well, what makes your your company is so effective. And there's a bunch of things at work here, whether it's attitudes towards risk or it's uh, human capital, which is very strong, or it's uh, the army, which really, you know, I think in this country trains people to be entrepreneurs, believe it or not. But it's it's this global orientation and the connections mm-hmm. that we're building. And, and that's why I think our crowd really could only grow, at least initially in Israel. Because a little startup, if we had been, you know, born and raised in the U.S., we would have stayed there, right? right. Words, the market's so big, who cares about the rest of the world, okay? And here, I think we grew as such a global platform because we are Israelis. Well, John, uh, it's a it's a it's a really inspiring story. It's really, I mean, you are uh, one of the more passionate speakers, and your enthusiasm is really well founded because you're you're you see a vision, you see an opportunity, which is a global one, and you're looking at companies, as you said, solving big problems uh, way into the future, and it's kind of hard not to get excited about it. Well, thank God. Let's hope yeah. we, can, we can do some good and have some fun. And it was great spending time with you, Jesse. Really appreciate it. Really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, take care. Thanks a lot. This concludes the guest interview portion of Reorient. Please stay tuned for the postscript where Madhavi and I will discuss our key takeaways from the interview. Advance warning, this episode of Notes from Utopia is a bit off the wall. However, in my defense, the research I am presenting to you comes from two legitimate and respected scholars. 
The first is Navras Afridi, who is a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, or ISGAP, and a scholar in Indo-Judaic studies. The second is Shalva Whale, an anthropologist at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who has published extensively on the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Argumentum ad vericundium, you might say, but let me get into it. Afghanistan has been all over the news lately, and before that, Kashmir, two regions of the world where peace tragically remains elusive. But there's something else that's quite remarkable about these regions that has escaped wider notice, and that is both the Pashtun tribes of Afghanistan and the Kashmiris claim descent from Israelite tribes. Now, no scholar has verified beyond doubt the historicity of such claims, although attempts have been made to do so in the past. But the same groups who claim this descent are in fact quite virulently against Zionism, very pro-Islam, and have no desire to make Aliyah or move to Israel. All of which is to say that they seem to have none of the incentives one might assume would make someone claim Jewish descent. Moreover, such claims are not recent, dating back many centuries, in fact. The Pashtuns of Afghanistan, yes, the same fearsome warriors that make up the ranks of the Taliban, believe themselves to be of descent from a contemporary of the Prophet, Qais or Kish, who himself was 37th in descent from the biblical figure Saul, a fact that is mentioned in several medieval Persian texts dating from the 13th century. The Pashtuns sometimes refer to themselves as Bani Israel or the children of Jacob. They have certain practices that appear to be Jewish in nature, such as the lighting of candles on the Shabbat, keeping of long side locks, wearing of shawls resembling the Talith or Jewish prayer shawl, and circumcision on the eighth day after birth. More recently, the Taliban resistors of Western Afghanistan are actually fairly recent converts to Shia Islam from Judaism. These Marshadi Jews converted en masse after a pogrom in 1839. While espousing Islam in public, they continue to practice Judaism at home in secret. And then we have the Kashmiris. The Pashtun villagers of Gultibag believe they have descended from Judah. The pastoral Gujars who observe a Shabbat claim to be of Israelite descent. And the inhabitants of Yusmarg Valley, Yus being the local name for Jesus, call themselves Bani Israel. The first three early historians of Kashmir all categorically state that Kashmiris are descendants of Jacob. This is also somehow tied into the belief held by some that Jesus survived crucifixion and settled in Kashmir. And this was the subject of a BBC documentary, by the way. Some believe that the tomb of Jesus is actually the Rosa Bal shrine in Kashmir. Again, there are some Kashmiri practices that could appear Jewish in nature, such as women having to observe a 40-day purification ritual and Kashmiris avoiding animal fat while cooking. A modern history of Judaism in Asia is yet to be written, but as more and more research is done into this fascinating aspect of our past, our understanding of this region will have to change and evolve yet again. Hello, hello, we're back. So, Madhavi, what did you think of my discussion with John Medved? It was a very edifying discussion, Jesse, especially if uh, if uh, listeners are like me and uh, so not closely following what's going on in Israel right now. Um, I was very uh, uh, 
interested to learn about Silicon Wadi. Is that the, do you speak Hebrew? I, I, I believe it's... I don't, uh, but yes, Wadi being the um, Arab uh, word for... Um, for valley, I guess I do need to look that up. But yes, yeah, some people... Um, a dry desert wadi. riverbed. I looked it up. Okay. So yeah, so wadi is an Arabic word, uh, and it means valley or ravine. So it sounds similar to valley, but it's wadi. I like it. Israel is a home. Yeah, it's a great term. So Silicon Wadi is a home you know, where a lot of the Israeli uh, high-tech companies are located. That's right. And uh, some of the very uh, high profile success stories, tech success stories of recent years have come from Silicon Wadi, such as Waze, I guess is the, the big one. Right. And also that's right. Wix and Tabula. There's another um, very high profile uh, Israeli company called Mobileye, um, which is uh, is developed autonomous driving capabilities you know with the cameras and the sensors and it was uh, acquired uh, by Intel oh. for uh, well over uh, 10 billion dollars wow and so you know listed on, on the stock exchange it was the largest ever um, Israeli IPO so that's um, yeah so Israel's uh, Israeli companies have really moved into things like um, artificial intelligence autonomous driving and, and and a lot of sort of vehicle related technologies. And this happened in a really short time, right? Yeah, that's right, Madhavi. Um, in fact, um, Israel sort of came on the scene relatively uh, recently, and this was documented in a, um, a really great book called Startup Nation, um, where uh, beginning in the 1990s, uh, Israeli companies started to list on the NASDAQ and become uh, well-known to you know, international, particularly U.S. investors, as a home for um, for technology. And uh, the author, uh, Saul Singer, goes through really methodically about how you know this small – uh, you know, formerly uh, sort of desert-ridden country in the middle of the Middle East, you know, where there's conflicts all around, became one of the world's hubs for technology and innovation. Oh, okay. What do you think, you know, I've been reading, right, so about this sort of unique confluence of factors that have led to the Israeli Israel's emergence as a as a tech powerhouse, and one of the key factors is the Israeli military, right? And I believe there's a traditional of um, national military service in Israel. There's a draft, you know, everybody has to serve, and this really creates a strong team spirit. And within the military, there is an elite force called uh, Unit Eight Two Zero Zero, which is an intelligence unit. Uh, responsible for collecting signal intelligence and code dec uh, decryption. And Unit A200 even has its own Wikipedia page, so I guess it's really famous. What's unique about it, though, is that it's staffed primarily by 18 to 21-year-old conscripts, and sometimes they recruit even younger kids. Um, they recruit at after-school computer classes. And so this sort of gives the unit, you know, this sort of real sort of spirit of energy and innovation. And the kids only serve for three years. So the pace of things in Unit 8200 is very rapid, right? So it's very imperative that the kids can learn and adapt as quickly as possible. And apparently Unit 8200, it, it's called upon to help across disciplines. So it's not just cybersecurity, but it even does things like I don't know, data science for COVID. And, and so basically, it's this really fertile training ground 
for the future tech superstars of Israel's startup scene. Yeah, that's right. And it's sort of counterintuitively, you know, again, as a small country uh, with um, sort of a history of conflict with various regional neighbors, um, Israel's sort of unlikely to be a, a bastion of, of tech startups. But the fact that Israel has um, sort of mandatory uh, military service uh, and uh, really can't rely on size to defend herself, but relies on sort of smarts and technology meant that out of necessity, uh, Israel uh, began training really intelligent young minds in, in the fields of, you know, cyber and, and technology and engineering, uh, computer science, et cetera, because um, to defend the nation. And basically, uh, these elite units could pick the best and brightest and give them a lot of training and in a very sort of high pressure environment. And, uh, that meant that these, uh, young, you know, young men, uh, primarily when they come out, they have incredibly, uh, advanced training in skills that are very applicable to technology businesses. Yeah, you know, Unit Eight Two Zero Zero sounds like uh, it could be made into a Hollywood movie or a TV show. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, Madhavi, because uh, obviously this isn't a part of the you know discussion with John Medved. But Israel, in addition to sort of being uh, the startup nation, is actually <laughs> has become inspirational for a lot of Hollywood productions. And I think one of the really well-known ones that many of us have watched uh, on Netflix is called Homeland. And uh, not many people may realize that Homeland is based on an Israeli uh, show um, and, you know, documenting, uh, you know, uh, sort of the, the challenges of, of intelligence agents and all the duplicity and all the um, sort of difficult uh, lifestyle, you know, navigating, you know, bureaucracies as well as sort of hostile foreign environments. Uh, and there's been a, a bunch of different shows that um, producers and directors um, find inspiration in, in Israel. Um, in terms of other factors uh, that could contribute to Israel's uh, success in this field, I also read that, you know, because Israel's home market is so small, from the very beginning, uh, Israelis have always been forced to look outside the country and as a small country, they have that small country advantage, you know, like Singapore, they're just naturally nimble and they they tap markets both east and west and they have business relationships in both China and the U.S. And in the U.S., they have almost like a an exchange program with Silicon Valley. It's not so much a diaspora, which would be uh, more akin to the Indian model, but um, for so, for example, with Waze, which is one of the big success stories of Silicon Wadi. Uh, the CEO sat in Silicon Valley while the entire team was back in Israel. And the reason for that was in Silicon Valley. He was in a core market, you know, and he got more media coverage and bigger network. And so it just made um, his exit easier. But I also wanted to ask you, though, like, what about English? Is is English widely spoken in Israel? And is that I mean, that has been a factor in India's uh, tech success. And I was wondering if if that's a, also a factor in Israel's success story. Yeah, well, great points. I mean, before I answer your question, Madhavi, I'd just reemphasize the point that you made that uh, big is not always better. In fact, sometimes smaller is better. And we're, we're seeing that uh, at the national level. And you mentioned Singapore and Israel. 
that uh, due to their small size, they're almost forced to um, sort of step up their game and, and be more nimble and in a way be more open. And uh, there's advantages to that, particularly when you think about integrating um, technology and, and investments uh, across, you know, uh, you know, borders across continents. And so Israel's parlayed that uh, incredibly well, uh, similarly to how Singapore has. Um, in terms of language, I would not say that language is an advantage uh, necessary for Israel. Um, the primary languages spoken are Hebrew and uh, Arabic. I think that the you know uh, the engineers and the people that are innovating in the tech world have sufficient uh, knowledge of English, but really, it's pri- Israel's strength is not in um, sort of social marketing, um, uh, you know, branding, uh, communication, but rather in the the sort of the deep tech, the um, the innovation development part. And for there, really, uh, in- uh, English is not um, uh, any sort of uh, you know advantage other than what's used in sort of computer coding <laughs> and and engineering. Engineering. Uh, and so that's where Israel really shines. And typically, um, once they get to a certain point, they might be uh, interned a partnership or acquired by, um, uh, you know, a, a U.S., European or, or perhaps an Asian uh, firm to uh, develop uh, in international markets. OK, got it. Got it. Um, now, what about our crowd? So they didn't pioneer the equity crowdfunding model in tech, but they seem to be phenomenally successful. Do you have any particular insights into why they've done so well? Yeah. So our crowd is really, um, I would say, a reflection of of John Medved's uh, vision. Um, you know, he'd been in the venture capital world for a long time. And, um, you know, he's Jewish and uh, decided to move to Israel and saw, obviously, the incredible opportunity uh, available within, you know, or, you know, ahead of Israel in terms of technology. And uh, he had um, a somewhat uh, unique idea, and perhaps it had been done, but he was able to scale it up and become, um, I think, the biggest in the world is um, typically um, when we think about early stage venture investing, um, and uh, it's typically done either through a network, local network where you know wealthy people will get to know entrepreneurs are introduced and have a chance to invest uh, in their companies at a very early stage uh, and then hopefully to make uh, uh, you know huge returns but also the chance that you might just come out uh, with losing everything right there's it's a very much higher risk investment than say buying uh, shares on the stock market mm-hmm because these many, most of these companies, in fact, not many, most of them will not survive. Now, uh, the other approach is uh, funds, where people will invest in a venture capital fund. Um, and that fund manager, uh, by, you know, will by himself or with a team uh, be screening, looking at, you know, tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of potential deals and then picking the best ones. And then after, you know, they make the investment, they will, you know, work closely with the companies and they might have a lot of expertise and contacts and ways to help those companies to grow bigger. So not only do they make the investment, but they're actually, they can stay close to the companies and increase the likelihood that that company will grow in value. 
Um, so venture capital funds have been a very popular uh, investment. But there's another sort of third way that uh, with our crowd that John Medved um, had uh, created, which is to um, uh, use a, a sort of a crowdsourcing, crowdfunding platform model. Mm-hmm. And the way that is, is you can become a sort of a member of our crowd, mm. um, a client, and then our crowd will show you deal opportunities. And then you can make the decision on your own whether you want to put money in uh, or not. And his sort of pitches, you know, you don't, as a private investor, you may not want to invest in a fund. You might like to invest in these, uh, you know, venture capital deals. But if you only invest in, you know, one or two a year, there's a decent chance you're going to lose everything. So rather than doing that, why not and create a portfolio where you're investing in dozens of these and putting a, a little bit of money in each one? And therefore, there's a, a much higher chance that you're going to have one of the, or, or two of the really big winners in your portfolio, which is going to be the the primary source of return. And then maybe you have uh, a number of ones that do well, and then many that just do okay. And then you're going to have a bunch that you know basically don't do well at all and might lose all their money. But when you add it all together, you're you know hopefully going to have a return that is even better than you would get in the stock market. So our crowd, um, in a way, pioneered this and has really successfully rolled this out um, really across the world uh, through their own uh, team and through their partnerships. And so it's really about their ability to bring super interesting deals. And again, they focus on deep tech. So it's not like social media, you know, the next, you know, Facebook, you know, right. um, you know, ch- photo sharing app, uh, things like that, but really technologies that will move the needle like in agriculture or, you know, satellites or mobility, you know, autonomous driving, these types of things. That's what they uh, really try to do. And in addition to that, uh, our crowd has really expanded their offerings. So they actually do have funds now, but are often thematic, like, um, you know, think of a fund that might focus on, for instance, a, um, you know, pet, pet, you know, medical care for pets or, you know, technology related to agriculture, or um, they even had like a pandemic fund. So they have thematic funds and a whole bunch of different funds. So because we're seeing more and more um, private companies uh, grow in in value, and, and there was a, you know, a great example was Uber, which you know became this huge company, but was not public uh, up until very recently, and so the people that made the money, say in Uber, were all the people that invested as venture capitalists. And we've seen this time and time again in the last 10 years where the bulk of the returns happen before the companies uh, ever go public. So there's because of that, there's a lot of growing interest from uh, you know high net worth uh, people to say, well, I want exposure to private companies, to tech companies before they go IPO. So our crowd is really trying to fill that need that there is from from people uh, investors to get 
to really be able to take advantage of, you know, the huge growth opportunity and profit opportunity within uh, early stage tech companies? Yeah, in a way, it's kind of like a democratization of uh, high quality venture capital deals, right? It's making them available to the rest of us. Correct. I mean, you need not, he, Jonathan Medved said, you, minimum investment is, you know, $10,000. So, right. you know, so it's available to, I guess, upper middle class people, you know, can, can sort yeah. of. There is um, a minimum uh, sort of, I think, net worth that someone needs to have in order to qualify to be on their platform. Mm -hmm. But you're right, it's probably in that middle, um, middle, upper, you know, middle, upper middle class kind of level. And it is, you're right, in a sense, it is a way to democratize that. And and in addition, um, you know, some people, they like to sort of be able to kick the tires, you know, talk to the CEO, which you have a chance to do with our crowd and maybe talk to other investors. So, you know, some people, whether, you know, they're retired, they have more time or they just have a strong interest, you know, could be in a particular, you know, type of of companies. And so um, rather than just put in the stock market or, or with the fund, they say, I want to, you know, I like, I enjoy, you know, be able to screen these deals myself and, and talk to other people and decide whether I want to go in or not, or, you know, make introductions to the company to help them grow. So um, there's a sort of a community interest group aspect of, of investing in venture capital as well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a very cool model. Their their fees are pretty high, though, but I guess that just reflects the quality of their offerings. So, <laughs> yeah, I think you know we get into the sort of no free lunch um, thing, and so you know they're they're trying to bring uh, a lot of value to their clients, but they you know they have a cost you know, base with with all the people they employ and uh, and the technology and services, and so they obviously. Uh, want to generate a profit for themselves. But I would say, um, John Medved, in addition to, you know, um, taking advantage of this huge opportunity, he really does feel that he is uh, helping Israel, you know, his his home country now, the country that he loves so much, and actually, by extension, helping the world, you know, bring Israel to the world and the world to Israel and bring people together. And, you know, there's a big aspect to investing, which is, you know, creating partnerships and creating agreements with people and tying people together uh, for a common uh, purpose. And so I think he really, um, that's a lot of what motivates him too, is, is it's not about money, but it's really about creating a more, um, a world where, you know, uh, that's better because you companies are bringing on exciting products that can help people. Uh, and also you were bringing people from different countries together um, to cooperate and hopefully share in, you know, the benefits of, of growth and opportunities. That's right. And that's a great segue into talking about the momentous geopolitical changes in the region, which I believe you've been following quite closely as well. Uh, and I'm referring to the Abraham Accords and uh, how that's really kind of a game changer, right? Yes. So um, the uh, Abraham Accords, I, I think, are not a lot of people still maybe not appreciate the huge ramifications uh, of the Abraham Accords. Um, so this was a really uh, an agreement, a statement uh, signed by Israel, the UAE, and the United States um, towards the end of the Trump administration, so in August of 2020. And what it did is 
previous, you know, sort of the first really big agreement that Israel had um, since in the Middle East, since the um, Camp David Accords, right? Mm -hmm. Which um, under under Jimmy Carter, where you had uh, Israel uh, normalizing relations with uh, Egypt and and Jordan. Right. So the Abraham Accords, you, you have the coming together of Israel and the UAE and quickly um, that also led, uh, I mean, that also included uh, Bahrain um, and it sort of spread to other countries because the, um, in a sense, the taboo had been broken and the waters had been broken. So they've established already embassies and there's a lot of cultural exchanges and business exchanges. And uh, once you have a country like UAE, which is very influential um, across the across the you know the region, um, having normal relations with Israel, that opens up to pretty much most of the other countries in the region, and that includes places like. Saudi Arabia and Sudan and Oman and on and on and then you know Tunisia and Morocco. So uh, many of these countries are are maybe in the process of moving towards building better relations with Israel as a result as a result um, of the uh, Abraham Accords. Um, and so you can imagine a Middle East, uh, a Gulf region where you know the hostilities are officially declared over and instead of bellicose rhetoric they're talking about foreign direct investment they're talking about travel they're talking about academic exchanges the whole thing looks different they're now cooperating and moving together and and once that momentum uh you know t- puts in place which i think it already has um, the tides have really changed, and and what country, really? I mean, what's the point then of 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 sort of you know saying you know de- death to Israel, death to America, when your neighbors are saying, hey, we're we're you know we're doing a new water desalinization project with Israel, and you know we're create there are brothers, and we're you know we're doing more tourist exchanges, and we're competing in sports. I mean, it's hard to populations <laughs> to, to, to want to uh, to continue to sort of um, to embrace uh, hostility when when they can see that you know others neighbors are enjoying the benefits of friendship, and so that's what's happening now in Israel. So I think, um, with the exception of, of a few countries, uh, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the Iran's of the world, um, you know, in, in, in Israel are still very much in a in a hostile. Uh, posture but within the gulf region it's a very becoming very very warm uh, friendly uh, ties as it should be given you know the long history of the two communities coexisting peacefully yeah i i, I should sorry i just to, i don't i should say it's not just the gulf region it's spreading to north africa um, as well as, um, you know, uh, even places, uh, you know, like Central Asia as well, sort of Islamic countries in, in, in parts of, of Europe and, and Central Asia as well. So it's, it's um, agreed, as it should be, because um, historically, going to further back in history there was there was no animosity, no animosity. and uh jews lived in uh, and you know this better than i do but um you know under you know the ottoman empire and various islamic empires that uh jews lived uh, peacefully and generally uh you know with the, with a very much high degree of equality and and were very much part of those societies um important members 
Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Iran because um, uh, listeners may or may not know, but for the past three months, I have been based in a place called Kargil, which is uh, on the border of India and Pakistan. And Kargil is a region that is uh, Shia Muslim. It has very, very close cultural ties to Iran. Uh, and in fact, the uh, everyone here, uh, they're, they're, they're migrants from Iran, maybe, you know, came here three, four hundred years ago. But even today, everyone here goes to Iran, spends time in Iran, studies in Iran. Uh, everywhere you go here, you see posters of uh, Khomeini, the sort of revolution uh, and its aftermath, uh, all the sort of uh, social societal reforms that came out as a result of the revolution in Iran have been implemented here. So in a way, it's almost like a little outpost of Iran uh, uh, in the, uh, on the border of India and Pakistan. And um, recently, uh, we just concluded uh, Muharram, which is a very holy month for Shia Muslims. It uh, commemorates the slaughter of uh, Imam Hussein. Um, it's just sort of the original split between the Shias and Sunnis in Islam. And it's a month of mourning uh, in Shia Islam. And uh, so the 10th day of Muharram is the holiest. It's called Ashura. And the Shia Muslim men, primarily, they, they do these processions in in the street, you know, where there's a lot of like self-flagellation. And uh, although apparently the Ayatollah has said that they need to sort of cut down on that because it's a little bit over the top. And, and you know, people sort of screaming a lot of very anti-America, anti-Israel kind of slogans. And uh, for me, just sort of, uh, being here and witnessing that firsthand and then knowing all the other stuff that's going on in the region, the stuff that you mentioned, right, like the Abraham Accords, a complete change, right, in the uh, larger geopolitical environment. I really feel like in my conversations with people here, because I work very closely with the Shia Muslim community here, I feel like things have got to change, right? Because things are clearly changing. So why are they still sort of stuck in this, this, in these old uh, patterns of thinking? And, you know, they really sort of have to, I, I feel like we're going to see an explosion in prosperity in the um, Sunni world because of the Abraham Accords and all the sort of opportunities for economic and business co cooperation that they've opened up. And then in the meantime, you have the Shia world that's still sort of in this Islamist mindset, still sort of holding on to these these old grudges. And, and I, it's just counterproductive, to be honest. And in fact, you know, the, the interesting thing, though, is that, OK, on one hand, so there's there's some people here and I talk to them. And on one hand, you know, they'll all say, oh, yeah, America is the great Satan. Israel is terrible. But on the other hand, so this region is cold desert region and they're trying to build up uh, the agricultural sector here, because it, it actually does have a lot of rivers and the soil is quite fertile. Uh, you know, it's a great region for just a, a lot of like Mediterranean style uh, agriculture as well. Like, you know, the grapes here are delicious, uh, the fruits like apricots, peaches, apples, and also just like uh, very, very rich in medicinal plants. So when you talk to people who are farmers, Many of them express admiration for Israel in, the, in that aspect, right? So they will say, we want to be like Israel. You know, it's a country that was a desert, but then through the sort of very judicious use of technology uh, became, I think, is, is Israel self-sufficient uh, now? 
Yes, I, I believe it is self-sufficient uh, in agriculture. So they've been able, despite it being a desert, um, to grow their own food through, um, you know, agroponics and, um, you know, desalinization, right. etc. because they were short on water and sh- short on water and short on arable land. But through the use of technology, they end up growing their own food. And by the way, it's delicious. If you ever go to Israel, you'll be <laughs> impressed with how fresh and, and, and uh, delicious so, the food is So, you know, that's there. like, gives me a it's like a glimmer of hope right that even though people are still sort of stuck in these destructive old patterns on the other hand uh there there is a small subset that's like oh you know look actually israel really has a lot to offer you know know, it would be interesting to hear uh yeah how these shia muslims feel about the uae because obviously um you know it, it has a lot of um you know, it embraces its traditional Islamic roots and religion, but at the same time, it seems to be very forward-looking and outwardly looking. And rather than just, you know, looking back at the, you know, at the travesties of the last thousand years, you know, UAE is announcing, you know, a $10 billion investment fund into Israel, you know, and, and rebuilding historic ties with, you know, their Jewish cousins. It's in a sense, it might be, easier for other um, granted Shia Muslims to look at uh, at another Muslim state and say, huh, well, if they can do something like that, maybe we can as well. Well, I hope that's the lesson people take away from this. Uh, but the UAE, Arabs, Arabs and Persians are different ethnic groups, right? So for people yes. over here in Cargill who are of Persian descent, uh, the Arab world is not really a huge part of their cultural universe, you know, they're just, they almost look exclusively at Iran, like everything is about Iran. So, so Iran would sort of represent to them the, the not, not sort of the homeland in a way of, of a place that has, you know, a continuous Persian um, culture and traditions, and obviously the huge Persian population. So for them, it sort of represents the in some uh, almost a homeland in a way yeah yeah iran is a homeland for them you know although they are in india but you know honestly i think they're only in india uh it's an accident of colonialism and how they drew the borders so so how you know the iranian diaspora you know ones that came after you know the revolution right uh, islamic revolution in, in iran obviously they are not fans of the no, iranian regime no. <laughs> It's very so interesting. So how would uh how would the Persians who you know left the Iranian region, you know, perhaps, you know, even centuries ago, how would they feel about the Iranian government because there's you can still be you can be of Persian descent or be Persian but not necessarily want to embrace the uh, you know the the government of 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 Iran. I would say about 80% of them over here are very pro revolution, which is just, and it's very interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I also live in Toronto, which has a very large population of refugees from Iran or Iranian diaspora to the point that some people call it Toronto. But when I talk to my friends there, like my Iranian Canadian friends in, in Toronto, right, they're very, very negative about the revolution. And then when I come here, mm-hmm. everyone's just like full of praise for revolution. <laughs> very, interesting. very interesting. So, you know, I'm getting two very sort of diametrically opposite perspectives on the revolution. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, you know what, the people here are, uh, 
highly educated. And uh, this whole region, okay, uh, as you pointed out earlier as well with the Arabs, right? But the same applies for the Persians. Uh, you know, highly sophisticated, cosmopolitan, like look at their history, right? So there's no need to sort of get stuck in these tribalistic holding patterns. And it's time for people to like snap out of it and break out of it. And for me personally, because I'm working here, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with uh, the people I'm working with, right? Because it's just mm. this tendency to sort of keep reverting to those, oh, you know, Sunnis are like this, or oh, you know, so-and-so is like this, mm. right? And uh, it's like, well, guys, look at look at your history. Like, you come from a really glorious history of these great commercial empires in Persia, especially like one of the world's oldest civilizations, right? Like, why are you... Mm. Well, in some ways, it's a, um, you know, this type of uh, just pure tribalistic thinking is a way to sort of avoid taking responsibility for, you know, creating, you know, working to create better relations and also improve your, you know, the status of your own homes, your own communities. So I think there is a bit of a, um, a what's the word? Um, it's not a constructive uh, way of engaging in the world. It, it's very much a, um, a way to give oneself an excuse not to Absolutely. try to move things forward. Absolutely. I cannot agree more. And I, I suppose, though, you know, Iran now also sort of has the fallback option of making building alliances with China, right? So I think China and Iran recently announced some sort of 25-year-old, 25-year strategic partnership. Um, but I don't know if is that going to be enough to counteract the rise of uh, a newly empowered UAE and Israel-led Middle East. I, I doubt it. You know, like, I mean, it seems like whatever's happening between UAE and Israel is actually, I used this word before, momentous, but I think it's momentous. You know, it's a return to form. Uh, it's a return yeah. to past glory. And uh, OK, a China-Iran partnership, I don't think it can combat that. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think what the Abraham Accords really represent and portend is a, an integration of the Gulf region, uh, you know, increased economic cooperation, human uh, cooperation. And so it will create a much more vibrant, wealthier and confident region. Uh, and that might um, that there's very I'd say decent chance that that means they'll be able to take more unified positions against what they view as external threats and whether that's, you know, Iran or, or, or someone else. So I think it will represent, um, I mean, in a sense, a little bit like the European Union, you know, when the European states came together and said, okay, we, right. you know, rather than waging war on one another, we need to really, you know, build ties and partnerships. And for all its problems, the EU did have a lot of successes. Um and so I think there is a parallel there with with what we might be seeing in in the Gulf region, and again beyond, because we're already seeing it, you know, uh, increase uh, beyond outside of the Gulf region. So um, I think the you know the China Iran cooperation is probably based a lot on energy, you know, similar to the way that the U.S. Saudi uh, cooperation historically was, you know, energy and defense. But that's very different than people to people right. <laughs> ties and exchanges. Right. And so I think that's the point you're making. Uh, yeah, so, that's the point I mean. Um, we, we, we've seen, yeah, we've seen the limits of those types of sort of top down ones, uh, which uh, versus the the bottom up. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I can just say I really hope that 
it works out because, you know, it needs to be a model for the rest of the region, like India and Pakistan, another example, right? Of course, China is, you know, supporting Pakistan, but, you know, and maybe China will never kind of allow it to happen. But I can only imagine how wonderful it would be if India and Pakistan just mm. stopped this ridiculous, you know, bickering, nonstop terrorism, everything, that just how much more productive it would be. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, what is clear, I think, to everyone now are these types of historic conflicts unresolved are impediments to development and to improvement in many ways. So um, and and they really don't seem to serve any purpose (laughs) other than just keeping uh, countries apart from one another. Yes, I absolutely agree. And uh, sort of Mm -hmm. related to this, Speaking of coming home, kind of it's like Israel coming back to Asia and like sort of asserting itself as an mm. Asian power is also kind of like a homecoming, right? Yes. In, in the world, we tend to think, I guess, of, of Israel as a European power. And I always thought it was funny that Israel part to send someone to Eurovision because, you know, they're east of Turkey. But uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Israel's technically in Asia. It's an Asian country. So it is part of Asia, even though in, in many respects, like, say, football, it, it plays, you know, in, in the European League and, and singing contests. Uh, <laughs> they, they compete with other European countries. But you're absolutely right. Uh, it's uh, there is sort of a coming home, and perhaps that Abraham Accords and then beyond uh, will mean that it, you know Israel's very much uh, embraced as an Asian, uh, if not a you know power, at least a, a, a strong member of Asia. And it should be noted, and John, and John Medved mentioned this as well, I believe. But starting around maybe ten years ago, Israel was getting lots of interest from large East Asian corporations, you know, the big auto companies, uh, lots of big Chinese companies, the Korean tech companies. So East Asia in the beginning, to start off with, has really um, built its presence and ties with Israel. And then, as you also mentioned, like in agriculture, like, um, you know, Vietnam uh, adopted a lot of Israeli um, irrigation technologies and other things. And and Singapore, uh, I'm sure you know, has a long history with Israel from its founding because Israel was um, really uh, a very instrumental in, in Singapore's early days to help it create its its, its military apparatus and, and other sort of strategic uh, planning. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, one of the, was he the first prime minister of Singapore, uh, before it became independent, uh, was uh, David Marshall. He was, he was a Baghdadi Jewish, of Baghdadi Jewish oh, origin. Wow. I did not know that. So back in the Malaya days, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, very interesting. I didn't know that. So yeah, there was that history there. And then uh, Lee Kuan Yew actually discusses in his book, really inviting Israelis, uh, you know, right after independence to come in uh, and help uh, build Singapore. <laughs> so to some ways, Singapore is built on the Israeli model. It is, it is, especially the whole water technology thing, right? Um, so I, right. when I lived in Singapore, I, I visited a, a desalination plant and with, a, with an Israeli woman and she was sort of telling yeah you know we've been doing this in israel for a while and it's like oh okay that's really interesting um yeah yeah, no and you mentioned this earlier too but it's just i'd just like to talk a little bit about this um as well but in asia like for example let's look at india like india has always been very hospitable to the jewish diaspora uh and maybe the most well-known example of that are the beni israeli jews who Mm -hmm. came to india i think maybe several thousand years ago and settled and uh were completely accepted to the point, I guess, where they basically sort of assimilated into the mm-hmm. larger population. 
And I kind of wonder if that's why we tend to think so much of like the Jewish community as having a European identity, because in Europe, they were never allowed to assimilate. You know, they were always separate. And so they kept that identity. It was much stronger in those sort of hostile conditions, whereas in Asia, they just sort of were part of everyday life. I guess they were just like anyone else. I think that's a that's a fantastic point. It's actually what I hadn't thought about, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, there are uh, Jews are typically divided into two groups, the Ashkenazi and the uh, Sephardim. You know, the center for a lot of Jewish culture and learning was uh, Babylon, you know, today's Iraq. Right. Um, and so Iraqi Jews, you know, there are many Jews, as you mentioned, were, were really part of the, you know, the greater Ottoman Empire and, and other, you know, living in, in Arab countries and then along the Silk Road and into India and, and China as well. And so very much integrated into those societies. And, and um, your point about the Jews being really much less integrated in European societies um, and, and really, I think, under Christendom. Uh, suffering a lot more than they did uh, under Islam is a really important one. And um, obviously, you know, if you look at the Jewish history in, in, in Russia, in the Tsarist days, you know, that the Jews were confined, confined to certain areas and persecuted. So so it does speak to um, a long history of much more peaceful uh, engagement uh, with the uh, Asian uh, cultures and to, to extend, as you said, integration and assimilation into to Asian societies. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like I said, you know, it's a it's a kind of it's a it's a kind of homecoming, you know. <laughs> so there's a wonderful um, video I saw of this famous uh, Indian Israeli chef uh, who's been in Israel for many many decades now and she has a very popular uh, Indian restaurant there and um, she talks a lot about marrying uh, her Indian heritage with her you know Israeli you know in her Israeli homeland and feels how they really complement uh, one another oh yeah I mean I, I think we discussed this before too but actually uh, the Jewish community in India was also instrumental in setting up Bollywood over here. So, <laughs> and right, there's that Bollywood star who was Jewish, right? One of the early ones. Uh, First yeah. Bollywood actresses was of Jewish origin <laughs> <laughs> because they could. Was it also because you know culturally they were also allowed to maybe express themselves? Yeah, maybe. More? Yeah, like more sort of. Uh, uh, I guess cosmopolitan <laughs> westernized, right? So yeah, she was a, <laughs> allowed to go on screen, I guess, by her family. But uh, yeah, <laughs> interesting. But yeah, no, there, well, there are others too, like uh, Anish Kapoor. You know, like the very, very famous artist. His mother is Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so and most people don't know this, right? But that's, I guess, that's my point. It's just they're so assimilated into Indian society that yeah. maybe Indians just well, don't even pay attention to the fact of their Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And I guess to really, you know, make the plot thicken, um, there was some rumor uh, in Iran that Ahmad Aminajad uh, had Jewish ancestry as well. Oh. Um, and, you know, whether it's true or not, I think it's it's certainly plausible because there are so many Jews in Persia. Right. So even maybe the one of these vociferous anti-Israel leaders might actually have Jewish lineage, ironically. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I think, anyway, so here's to, like, you know, putting all these, like, 
tribal conflicts behind us and and looking That's ahead, right. you know, maybe we all take well our- embrace exact embrace your culture, learn about your history, but don't close yourself off to other uh, peoples. That's right. And if you do embrace your history and culture, then you'll know that, you know, actually, we did all get along at one point. Right? <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's a you're right. That's a really, really important point. And I think, Madhavi, again, you do a wonderful job, you know, with the tropicalist as well as highlighting, uh, because many of us really aren't really informed about not to mention other people's histories, but even our own history, uh, you know, uh, we're, we have a very limited understanding. As you said, there's been a long decade, you know, centuries and millennia of of sort of, you know, more or less peaceful coexistence between uh, different peoples and these uh, cultures uh, be able to thrive and uh, and, and also um, develop uh, way before, you know, the current nation state uh, system that we have. Yeah, yeah, I really hope we can put it all behind us. And uh, yeah, kudos to Israel and the UAE for showing the way, you know, if they can get along, the rest of us can, you know, really. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks Agreed. again, Jesse, for a very, very interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, for bringing such a, an amazing sort of diversity of guests to the table. <laughs> you know, it's really enjoyable. Absolutely. We've got it all at the reorient, right? Because we're talking about venture capital. We're talking about the Middle East. We're talking about Asia. We're talking about history. We're talking about, you know, your portfolio. And and it's all sort of all tied together. And it's it's a lot of fun. So thanks a lot, Madhavi, for being such a great partner. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Okay, <laughs> to our listeners, thank you for listening. Till next time. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.